You're listening to teaching from Central Church in West Columbia, South Carolina. We hope that this message will help you experience Jesus in a new and exciting way. For more information, please visit us at centralnazarene.org. My deepest prayer is that you will worship Jesus now. It won't be a song and it won't be music. It will be the very uh, song of your heart, the very, the very, uh, 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 very. I was going to say the word ethos. That probably doesn't even communicate. Uh, the very core of your being is, is worship to God. And I'm not talking about coming to the sanctuary. And I'm glad we come into the sanctuary. It's a part of, of what we do as believers. We gather together in Jesus' name. But it will be the song on your lips. It will be the cry of your heart. And that you will have a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. And, um, and that God the Holy Spirit will live vibrantly in your life. So that no matter where you are, the, the song of your life will be of worship and praise to Jesus Christ so that the, gas, the person at the gas station know it, the person at the grocery store knows it, the person that's uh, your agent of whatever that agency is, whether water or plumbing or electrician or, or whatever it is, you're, uh, it recognizes that this person is a Jesus follower. It will be the words on your mouth so that whatever it is that you're talking about is shaped by the person of Jesus. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. And if, if he is who he says that he is, then that's something we need to be paying real close attention to. And you have to decide what you're going to do with him. You don't get to not decide. You're, by not doing something, you're deciding. And that question, and what you do with that question, who is Jesus, and what are you going to do about it will shape your life in this present age and it will shape your eternity into forever. How you deal and how you answer that question. As I said, he, he claimed to be God. Uh, most of you know the, the great C.S. Lewis who said this, that he is either a liar, we're talking about Jesus, He's either a liar, square with that, frame yourself with that. He's either a liar or he's a crazed person. Because you can't say the things that he said and he not be deranged. If he is not who he said he is, then he is a lunatic. And we would put him in an asylum, we'd give him some medication, calm down. So he's either a liar, he's just flat out telling something or he's kind of crazy, or he is who he said that he is. And if you look, if you look at his, the te- those who testify of him, he doesn't seem to be a liar. He certainly, when millions and millions and billions of people have found peace and consolation and directed their life, it's certainly in the manifestations of a crazy person. It could very well be that he is Lord and Christ. And if he is, then you better square your life with him. Because your life in this present age and in the age to come is going to be shaped by that very thing. Now Jesus emerges into history, in in physical history, through a Jewish, a prophetic Jewish context. 
You, you, you can't just, you just can't extrapolate and, and set him in, in uh, uh, tw- uh, 20th, 21st century uh, United States. He emerges out of a, a, of a uh, uh, first century, because we mark time by him, uh, Jewish world and the prophetic world which precedes that. And so we have to understand him in that context. So from the earliest times, now remember, we're trying to set a, a framework, a, a foundation, a reason why we need to deal with him. Because from the earliest times, in the very first book, in the third chapter, we have these words, the Almighty had given, and I, I, I'm just going to assume, and because I, I, I don't have time to deal with everything, I have to assume that you know the creation story, and you know the story of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and you know how that sin and the curse fell on the earth because of disobedience. They disobeyed the Almighty, and because of that, sin fell on the earth. And the entire created order was cursed. And so Eve, also, her, uh, her, her labor in childbirth was a part of that process. And so God the Almighty was speaking to Eve and the serpent who had deceived her. And he said, he said, and this is what is considered, scholars consider this the first promise of a Messiah. We call it the first messianic promise is Genesis 3.15. He says to the, to, the, to the serpent and to Eve, you will bruise her offspring's heel. But the promise is there is one coming who will crush your head. Now that is an ancient promise of thousands of years ago that the Lord Almighty says to the serpent, you're going to bruise him, you're going to crush his heel, you're going to hurt him, but just wait, that's not the end of the story. He's going to crush your head. So that is the first promise out of history where the Almighty speaks to his people and says, I'm sending a, a rescuer, I'm sending a savior, I'm sending one who will restore all things, I'm sending a deliverer, a messiah. And then in Deuteronomy, just a couple of verses, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, part of the Pentateuch, the first books of the Bible, there is this word, this prophetic word, uh, that Moses shares with the people of Israel. And, and Moses is, is preparing them that he's going away. He's, he's getting Joshua ready to take over. And he says to, to the people of Israel, he said, The Lord your God, and I'll just say, The Lord Almighty, the Lord your God, will raise up for you a prophet like myself. The Lord will raise up a prophet for you like myself. And we call that now in books a prophet like Moses. And Jesus has been identified as that prophet who is like Moses. You will identify, uh, you will rise up a prophet like me from your brothers. And you are to listen to him. Now how is Jesus like Moses? There's at least 20 ways that he's like Moses. So I've got to move really quickly. So I need you to listen fast. Can you listen fast? Okay, try to do that because I, I just... I, I, I just need you to do that. So he is among the brothers of Israel. He is, they both were shepherds. Uh, they both fasted uh, 40 days and nights. They both spent time in Egypt as children, uh, as, as young, young people. Uh, they both performed miracles. They both established covenants. They both gave up riches to follow what God had told them to do. And that's just seven out of 20, but I don't have time to enumerate all 20. So Jesus is considered like that one, that prophet like Moses. As we look back in history and say, surely he was that one. But then there's another Old Testament. Remember, we're talking uh, a context of, of ancient 
Hebraic prophetic sayings. Not any other part of the world, not any other prophets, but the prophets of Israel. An Old Testament text which is powerful, which is mighty, uh, which is astonishing. And Daniel was receiving visions from, from, from God about kingdoms that would come on the earth. He was, he was hearing uh, and seeing things that he did not understand and things that made him quake and things that made him pass out and fall to the ground. And he was trying to understand these visions. And this is one vision that he writes about in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Now that's a very pregnant statement in the Old Testament and in fact in the New Testament. There's... Uh, there's, there's several statements of that. It, it's, um, it, what it does is it, it's not an angel. It's not, it's not Yahweh. It's not, it's not uh, some other kind of being. It's, it's a human being is, is the reference of that. One like the Son of Man. So remember that uh, when uh, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace. Remember that? And, and Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fire and he says, I see one like the Son of Man. Another human being figure in there. Uh, how many did you throw in there? We threw in three. Well, I see four. And he is like a Son of Man. But there's amazing things that are happening. So that's a very pregnant phrase. So he says, I see one. Now he's seeing a vision of heaven. And he's seeing the Almighty. He's seeing heavenly realms. He's having this prophetic vision. And he says, I see one like the Son of Man. Now, these are very pregnant words. These are very powerful words. And he says, and he is coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, there is no other creature mentioned in the Bible uh, anytime that phrase is used that always refers to God. Only God rides on the clouds of heaven. So Daniel is seeing this vision. And he says, I see one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approaches the Ancient of Days, which is, in our understanding of the triunity, is God the Father. He approaches the Ancient of Days and is led into his presence, this, this Son of Man who's coming on the clouds of heaven. And he is given, he is given authority and glory and sovereign power. This is the Son of Man, a figure that's showing up before the Almighty who has given these things, Authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and people and every language will worship him. Now, Daniel has seen these things. He talks about the coming kings, and you can actually historically verify those things which he prophesied about the coming, the, the rising and the fallings of the various kingdoms. In that same uh, book, he's saying there is one that's coming who will be like a man, who will, who will be ushered into the presence of the Almighty. He will be given sovereign power. He will be given authority. And all nations of the earth will worship Him, will bow down to Him. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and it will not pass away. All these other kingdoms that Daniel had visions of, all, every one of them will pass away. But the kingdom of this one, his kingdom will never pass away and it will never be destroyed. You don't have to worry about the church. <laughs> I see people wringing their hands. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. You don't have to worry about that. We're talking about God, sovereign God, Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I think when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We just need to be the church. Sorry for hollering. We just need to be the church. We need to be the people that God has called us to be. We need to have a fresh vision of who Jesus is. We treat him like he's me. Or you. 
or a cousin or a grandpa. He is the sovereign God, Lord of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all things who speaks and worlds coming to... That's who I'm talking about. One who is worthy of worship so that the moment you wake up, He's on your mind. The moment you're taking a shower, He's on your mind. The moment you hit and you're getting your car and heading to work, He's on your mind. Not just when you're getting ready for church on Sunday morning. In Him you live and move and have your being. Every neighbor, every associate, every person you meet should have some kind of awareness that this person is a Christ follower. His kingdom will never pass away. Now, that's, now if that just stood there by itself, that would be amazing. We'd go, wow, someday some man-like figure is going to show up before the Almighty and, and, uh, and the Almighty is going to give him authority and power and all the nations of the earth and every kindred tongue and nature are going to bow by before him and his kingdom will never end. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, just by itself, that would be amazing. And Jesus shows up. He shows up on the earth. And, and we'll say some other things about that, but in Mark chapter 14, we're heading now in Jesus' trial. We, we're moved into the New Testament. I gave you several Old Testament texts because there's many of them. I just don't have time to go through all of them, of course. But in Mark chapter 14, in verse 61 and 62, it said, Jesus' trial. He's been arrested. He's been beaten, uh, not by the Romans, but by the Jews. He's been uh, 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 kept up. He's, he's, it's in the nighttime. It's, it's getting near up into the early morning hours. And uh, he's not answering them anything. He's, he's really making them mad. He's really, really irritating them. And so the high priest is like exasperated with him because he knows his time is short and something has got to happen. Somebody has to die for the nation so the nation itself does not have to die. So he says to Jesus, I adjure you, I command you by the living God, are you the Messiah, the blessed one? A straight up question. Quit messing around with us. Quit not answering our questions. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of Man? Are you the Messiah that is prophesied to come? And Jesus said, verse 62, the very next verse, I am. You ever wonder if Jesus, if he is who he said, we say that he is? Right here is a, in red letter in the New Testament, I am. But now, and that would be enough. That would be enough for you to have to measure out and square yourself and justify yourself in front of. But this is what he says. Now, remember these words. I am, Jesus answered him, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what he's telling them there in no uncertain terms, the man that Jesus saw coming before the Almighty, whom authority and power and every kindred tongue and nation will bow before him, I am that man. You have to remember the Jewish context. Only God rides on the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest heard those words, you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven, he knew that that was a direct reference to the Almighty. And when he used the phrase Son of Man in that context with that verse, and I am that man, the high priest said, we have no need of any further witnesses. He has blasphemed. He has called himself God, and he rent his clothes. The high priest knew exactly what Jesus was saying. I wonder if we know what he's saying. If, if, if we understood what, what we say that he says, how much more differently would we live our life? I spoke, I think, the last Wednesday night about how that 
we don't even know what reverence and adoration and worship is. We almost don't know what it is. We know what labor, we know what tenacity, we know what commitment is. But just think of your own life and your own mind and your own heart and your own behavior and your own attitudes. Do you have any kind of sense of awe and adoration when you wake up in the morning and, and there's Jesus? Does it even cross your mind? Do you spend any time at all in just adoring Him, adoring Him in adoration and praise because He is the Holy One, the High and Holy Other One? The Psalms, the book of Deuteronomy, and the writer of Hebrews says this, Let all the angels of God worship Him. Angels are pretty powerful creatures but let all the angels of God worship Him. The Scriptures further say that the angels look into what Jesus is doing and stand in amazement. It also says, and we understand it this way, that the prophets who prophesied these things did not fully understand them, but they learned to look into them, and they yearned to see the day when it would arrive, and they did not see it, and most of them died trying to tell us about it. In the Nativity narrative, which I'm, 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 I'm you know, I, I feel September coming, you know, when, when September comes, things start changing, and, and, and I start feeling Christmas coming on. And already, uh, last night I was listening to some, I mean, it was just a sneak peek, but I, but I, I put on some sacred classic Christmas just for, just for a minute, just for a minute, just for a minute. I shut it down. I, I thought, wait, you, you got to wait. But anticipation of that. But the nativity scenes, we, we read and all the Gospels tell us that the, that the angels attended at his, at his, uh, at his birth. They, they announced his birth. They sang at his birth. The, the, his arch, the God's arch enemy, who is Satan himself, confronts Jesus himself in the wilderness. The arch enemy of God confronts Jesus in the wilderness, tempting him to, to, to seek fame and glory and power in another way than besides the cross. God the Father, the Almighty, speaks at His baptism and at His transfiguration. This is my Son. Listen to Him. John the Baptist announced Him, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. He speaks and the winds obey. He speaks and waves lie down. He heals the crippled. He heals the disease. He restores the mentally deranged. He casts out demons. He gives sight to the blind. He raises the dead. He walks in the water. He feeds the hungry. He forgives sins and no fault is found in him. The money changers and the thieves ran from him while the children ran to him so often and so much and so many that they, the disciples were trying to say, yeah, kids, kids, get away, get away, get away. And Jesus said, don't stop them from coming to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. The self-righteous were uncomfortable in his presence and in fact despised him while humble, humble sinners were drawn to him. The prophet Isaiah, the prince of prophets, says this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. You ever see these beautiful pictures of Jesus? That's the conception of some artist who maybe probably trying to do the right thing, but was not listening to the scripture, because apparently he wasn't Fabio. I guess you have to be above 40 to recognize that name. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one who people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord Almighty has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that is unfathomable. You can't comprehend that. Only God himself could bear that burden. The iniquity of us all. That's why we adore Him. That's why we worship Him. Now the reason it's necessary, God tells us, and He tells us in the very first parts of the Scripture and in Genesis, right after the story of, of, actually before the story of the serpent and Eve and, and the curse. Because God had said in the very beginning, the soul that sins, that soul will die. And Thus says the Lord, and you're not going to change that. The soul that sins, it will die. Remember a few a couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week, week four, uh, I, I made the statement, Jesus said, do not be afraid of men who can just kill your body, but fear God who can destroy your body and your soul. The soul that sins, it will die. Every one of us, because of the corporate sin of humanity, every one of us came into the world rebels, alienated, separated from God, enemies of God, hostile to God, not willing to be subservient to God, the Almighty. And we raise our little spiny hand and fist and say, I'll do it my way. And you'll do it that way right into hell. There is a way that seems right to you, but the end of it is destruction. So you better go to the author and finisher of the faith and ask him, how does you want me to live my life? So we all come, we all come broken, broken, alienated, separated, sinners. And who was it? George Whitfield. This would not be very popular today. In fact, It'd probably be shut down on Facebook. But he wrote a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We want to tweak that and say sinners in the hands of a loving God. Well, listen, that's where you want to be. Not a rebel in God's hand, but a repentant sinner. And you see, the reason this is so important, the reason it's so important is because we do not understand, and until you grapple, and I don't know who all will be hearing this, but this is really important for you to hear, hear, until you grapple, wrestle with the idea of how wicked and how evil you can be. Not them, not my brother, not my sister, how evil I can be. How deranged, how perverted, how distorted I as a human being, apart from the grace of God, can be. I will never really appreciate the salvation that is offered to me. That's absolutely true. So you need to wrestle with yourself and ask yourself just how deep and how low, how barbaric, how cruel, how mean can I potentially be? And I heard one man say, see yourself as a guard at the door of Auschwitz. I hope you know what that word means. Let me tell you. And listen, it wasn't ancient history. It was only 80 years ago. There are people alive today, my dad being one, 
who was alive when this happened between 1941 and 1945 in Auschwitz, Auschwitz, it's hard to say, Germany. A death camp, an extermination facility, just 80 years ago. I'm not talking about in 1442 or some. I'm talking about 1941, 1945. Now listen, it wasn't they were because they were barbarians from some backwoods. We're talking about Germany. We're talking about one of some of the richest people on the planet. We're talking about people who had access and listened and enjoyed some of the most beautiful music. Actually, no, the most beautiful music ever written. And choral arrangements of the highest order and academic standards that the world was trying to get to. They were the leaders and of, 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 of military might and an industrial complex that was the envy of the world. Not backwoods, ignorant fools. We're talking among people who are of the highest that the world had seen at the time with music and vocal arrangements and education and things that we still use today. And yet, those people, now don't, don't, don't cast too big a suspense, I'm just describing all of us, all of us could be guilty. So at least six million Jews not just men, women, men, little boys, and little girls, were marched 12,000 a day in cattle cars to camps. And they were lined up, their heads were shaved. Any, uh, the, uh, anything of any value they had was taken away. There they stood naked. They had been in, some of them had been in prison camps and other places. Some of them had been running for their life and were captured. Many, many of the little boys were castrated. The women had their heads shaved bare. Many of them had been in concentration camps long before this moment. Their skin, they were so starved, their skin just hugged their skeletal frame. You could literally see their skeleton behind their skin, the shape of it. And they would line them up, take them into these you know, you ever been to a concert or something like that and you're just body, you maybe you're in an airport somewhere and you're just, you're getting you're in a big crowd and you're, you're just, bodies are just pushing up against you and they're just put into these chambers. And they're told, you're going to get to take a shower. You know, you haven't had a shower in weeks and weeks. You get to take a shower. And they get them all in there as many as they can possibly fit and someone turns the dial. And they hear, Shh. and someone screams out, Yes! Yes, and they start gasping for air. And they start passing out and they just fall and they probably can't quite go to the ground because they're packed in there so tight and they're killed. And they shovel them out. Take them out in a big pit and just drop them in the ground. Cover them over with a bulldozer. I'm not talking ancient history. I'm talking 80 years ago. Among the most educated, the most affluent, the world had seen at that time. Less years than that, in 1949 to 1958, about a 10-year period, I wasn't born yet, by the way, but I wasn't far away. I was a gleam in my father's eye, probably. In Maoist China, where under atheistic, communistic rule, was who now we call Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, 
decided his country was backward and needed to have a leap forward. And so he moved whole populations from one place to another, trying to build up an industrial complex in his own nation, trying to catch up with the Western world. It is estimated, and, and farms were just left because the farmers were rich. The farmers were rich, and so they, they, they had big farms, and, and, and they would take the farmers and, and the wealthy of, 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 of China and take them into re-education camps or concentration camps. And, and many did not survive. And because they took the, the brain power out from the agricultural world and tried to put it in the industrial world, thousands and thousands and thousands, in fact, it's estimated somewhere between 20 million and 70 million Chinese died just in the 50s, just before I was born. In my lifetime, since I've been born, and under communist Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union, most many of you were alive in that time. They had their gulags. And they deported thousands and thousands and thousands of any, anybody that wouldn't tow the party line. Send them to Siberia into work camps. I, 18 million, it is estimated, died from starvation from execution, from torture. And by the way, if you're, not a, if you're a reader, I wouldn't challenge you to get the book written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the, Ar the, the Gulag Archipelago. It is not an easy read. In fact, you may read a few pages and put it down. But he, he was a Russian teacher, philosopher, uh, ac academic, who, would, who spoke against Stalin, who spoke against communism, and he was put in a camp a re-education camp. And it just so happened that world events so shaped and it was such world pressure put on the Soviet Union at the time, after eight years, they released him. But he had some powerful things to say about what godlessness looks like. Many of you who have taken philosophy classes in your college days or maybe in your upper high school, you have heard the name Frederick Nietzsche. You've heard that, the name Frederick Nietzsche? Frederick Nietzsche is the, uh, he died in 1900, so that was before I was born. Maybe not before Bill was born, but before I was born. He's, he is the one who is on the magazines, it said, and written in books, where he made the pronouncement, and it, it was printed on Time magazine, God is dead. The philosophy coming out of Germany And academia in the first world countries had pretty much concluded through philosophy and science that God was no longer relevant. And pretty much we had disproved that God existed. But he did not write that. I, all my life I kind of thought he was saying, God, we don't need him. He's an, he's an archaic concept, we need to get rid of him. God is dead. He may have thought it was an archaic concept. He may have thought we have answered a lot of questions. But when he said God is dead, he didn't, he didn't say that in a way that was triumphant. We finally killed God. What he was saying by that is we have killed the very ground of our being. Now think about this. He said that in a lamentation. We have killed God. And because of that, the next century is going to be the bloodiest century 
ever. Here comes the rise of the Third Reich. Here comes the rise of communist China. Here comes the rise of Soviet Union. And that's all bad. I read, I read uh, yesterday of the Trail of Tears, where I think it was Chuck, 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 I can't, it was an Indian tribe, Chuck something, Chuck Tall, I think it was. I probably said that wrong. Cherokee, in the, latter, in, the, in the middle parts of the 1800s in our own country, were marched from North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia area, marched west, and 3,000 of them just died of starvation and cold and disease. So evil is all around. But don't think it's over there. Don't think it's out there. It's like the prophet spoke to Saul. Saul, Saul. It's at your door. It's at your door. The prophet Jeremiah said, it's closer than that. It's in your heart. It's in your heart. Your heart is so desperately wicked. It's beyond understanding. It's beyond understanding. You do not know, apart from the grace of God and the word of the Lord that shapes your mind and consciousness and how you'll live your life, how barbaric, how cruel, how mean, how seditious you can be. I, I mean, just go, well, I, I, I hate to say this. And I'm not encouraging you to do this. I'm just describing but you can go to Facebook and just scroll down through there and you'll see a video of somebody beating somebody to death. I don't mean in China. I don't mean in South Africa. I mean on the streets of Chicago or the streets of Charlotte, North Carolina or the streets of Miami, Florida or Los Angeles, California. And one person who isn't towing the line a group of 8, 9, 10, 12 will beat that person to a pulp, stomp on their head with their feet. You don't think that you're above that? By the grace of God, hopefully you are. But unless you deal with the potential of the brutality of the human heart, you'll never take it seriously. Jesus answers the question of the mystery of evil. Even in these times, in this century, philosophers Theologians cannot give a full explanation of the mystery of evil. Why is it so pervasive? Why can't we eradicate it? Why is it so prevalent as long as we have studied, as much as we have thought, as much as we have trained, and as, as sophisticated as we think we are? Why is it still here? Because it resides in us. But here's the deal. I mean, we, guys and gals, we only have better tools and more dramatic tools to bring more suffering. But Jesus answers the mystery of evil and of pain and of suffering. Because God incarnate, because of his great love for us, as messed up as we have been, even God himself said, I am sorry I made you. I'm sorry I made you. But because of his great love, he would not turn away 
but He Himself took a form of a servant that was on the screen a minute ago. Philippians chapter 2. And He took on Himself our flesh. And he didn't, read, he didn't lead a group of people and let's get out of the world because it's a messed up place. Let's come over here in the desert and let's all get together. No, he faced it head on. He faced pain and suffering and evil head on and he took it into himself. He didn't go around it. He went through it and through it he conquered it and he stripped it of its power so that you don't have to be that demonic, messed up human being. Jesus is the answer for the world. He is the only answer for the world. There is no other answer. I mean, it just really is. We need to, get, we need to set ourselves right with that. Anywhere the Word, they may not articulate it like I do. They may not say it like I do. They may not enunciate it like I do. It may be in a completely different language. But where the Word of the Lord, and I don't mean the Bible per se, I mean the word of the Lord that God puts in the hearts and the minds of every human being that comes into the world. Where that is not listened to, death is right behind it. i got to wrap up. So Jesus offers us to those who come to him. See, Jesus, I, I mean, I barely know this. I mean, I, I, I studied all week. I read articles. I looked at video. I did all kinds of stuff to have this 20, 30, well, I don't want to count the time, but uh, to say something. And God knows it all, has seen it all. Jesus stands on the great day of the feast and he says, if anyone's tired of the brokenness, if anyone's tired of the morass, if anyone's tired of being wicked and evil, if anyone's tired of sinning, come to me. Come to me and I will give you water that will not run out. I will quench your thirst. Come to me. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink and drink freely. And he'll give us a new heart. The Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel said that. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. And Jesus will give us a new mind, the mind after himself, and we seek it out. And a new life, a new way of being. You don't have to be all, if we could see it in the spirit, how crinkly and ugly and distorted that spirit is. But with God, the Holy Spirit merges with your spirit. The scripture says you will shine like the stars of the heavens. Wouldn't you rather prefer that? On the cross of Calvary, bearing my shame and my agony, Jesus cries, look, sinner, look, and live, he says. Pardon is offered to you. We're all guilty. Why will you tarry? He took your place and canceled the debt of Adam's race. Mercy's door is still ajar. Come to him just as you are. Isaac Watts, the prolific English songwriter, put it this way. When I survey the wondrous cross... on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small to give to him for such a gift that he has given Jesus said, 
I am the way. I am the truth. And I am life. Come to him just as you are. The alternative you really don't want to deal with. I want you to watch this inspirational video. It says it better than I could ever say it. The late, great Evie Hill. You'll enjoy listening to his voice. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. 
That's my king. Amen. 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 Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. I urge you today to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life right now, right where you are. Make a fresh commitment. Turn to him. He said, he that comes to me, I will not turn away. Let this day be the day where Jesus is fully king. You'll never regret it. I'm absolutely sure of that. Now the Lord be with you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The ever faithful one, the ever living one, be with you and never forsakes. That's his promise. Go from this place, but not from his presence. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us at Central Church today. If you'd like to get involved, please visit us at centralnazarene.org.